Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 233 of the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. The title of today's interview is Fearless Pioneer, an interview with Dr. Daniel Cameron. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Folks, Matt and I have wanted to interview this Lyme pioneer, Dr. Daniel Cameron, for over two years. And the reason we wanted to interview him is we wanted you folks to know who was building the foundation for the successful treatment protocols that so many people in the community are using today. And that is Dr. Daniel Cameron. Rich, Dr. Cameron and I geeked out so much about all things Lyme disease. We talked about all different types of Lyme treatments in detail, what co-infections they can treat, what are the risks, what are the benefits, and Dr. Cameron has been helping save lives for over the last 40 years. We named this episode Fearless Pioneer because when Dr. Cameron moved to Mount Kisco, New York, with the idea that he was going to develop a geriatric practice, he saw that a community had needs that weren't being met because it was in the middle of a tick endemic community. And what he did is he pivoted over to treating Lyme disease at great risk to his career and to his family. And that's why we named him the Fearless Pioneer. Matt, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce Dr. Daniel Cameron to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Dr. Cameron, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Happy to be here. We are really excited to have you. You know, one of the, one of the nicknames we have for you at Tick Bootcamp is you're the king of all media. You you have uh, you have a blog, you have a, a podcast, which I absolutely love. Uh, you have great social media. I mean, you're 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 all over YouTube. So it's really exciting to have you. Uh, this sort of um, you know, king of all media here on our podcast, sharing uh, sharing your story. So, talk to us first about um, about your work uh, at your um, at your office in uh, Mount Kisco, New York. Well, I think um, I want to just go back just for a second to 1972 when I was in high school, learning Fortran, this IT type program, and so I could have gone that direction. You know, been a uh, IT guy, computer guy, could have gotten up to Rich's level, or at least in my head. Um, but uh, over the years, I decided, well, maybe I'll just do medicine and uh, be a thought leader rather than just a, a IT thought leader. So it's a, it's sort of a, an IT journal journey. My All brothers right. went in the direction of IT, and I went in the direction of medicine. So, uh, so you've been working on platforms for a long time and, you know, for a guy who wants to be a thought leader, you have to, of course, develop all these different platforms and, and you had a good foundation for that going back to the 1970s time that, you know, Dr. Cameron, only you and I would remember Matt probably wasn't even born back then and many of our listeners probably weren't even born so, uh, you know, there, there'll be some things you and I are going to be able to talk about because we're the old guys on the podcast. So, um, so let, let's talk first about your, your office in, in Mount Kisco. Well, I've been in uh, Mount Kisco since 1987, uh, taking care of Lyme disease. So it's uh, approaching 35 years. Uh, I first thought I'm going to take care of geriatric patients. That's what I've been trained on. I've, I was excited about it. I grew up on a farm with so many people who were elderly that I respected. But I showed up in Mount Kisco and instead of geriatrics, I, wherever I looked, there were Lyme disease cases that had the same challenges, same problems uh, uh, that uh, that I could uh, focus in on. So, all right, so let's walk this back a little bit. You grew up on a farm, so you're a farm boy. Talk to us about uh, where your farm was, your childhood farm, and what it was like to uh, grow up on a farm. Well, it was pretty boring um, at the time because I'm on a grain farm, corn and beans in, in Minnesota, out in the middle of nowhere, uh, unless you live there. Mom and dad uh, was on a farm, and so it's uh, 
but I was part of that Sputnik era where, you know, it's get off the farm and go do some science, go do some math. And uh, so that, uh, now I didn't have a journey. I was a first generation college kind of a family, didn't have much to go on. Uh, and uh, so it's been uh, sort of haphazard, but as long as I kept uh, my, my eyes on uh, doing something uh, that's, that's rewarding, you know, more rewarding than being a farmer. So as a, as a child on a farm, were you aware of, of ticks and tick diseases? Was that, was that something that ever came on your radar? Because we, we know folks in the farming community today um, are, um, are suffering from Lyme disease at a rate that's probably greater than any other profession. So was that something that was on your radar as a child farmer? No, I, I had uh, seen uh, the dog ticks and had been bit by dog ticks over the years. But that was in the uh, 70s, late 60s. Now, uh, there are deer ticks that keep showing up where I grew up. They're kind of drifting from the Michigan, Wisconsin area. Uh, and they go in from northern Minnesota down. And so I'm regularly having family members and friends from Minnesota who are calling me and uh, with a tick bite, with a rash, with all of the symptoms. And so uh, I'm not there anymore. But 40 years later, it's interesting. Those ticks showed up at my home uh, and, my, and, and with my neighbors. So Dr. Cameron, talk to us about what it was like to, um, to grow up on this farm and what was your educational experience like before you went to college? Well, I, I uh, used to take a bus every morning for about an hour, every morning. And it was, my hair was kind of long and um, sweaty and I hated to wear a, a stocking caps with, because uh, my hair was kinky and uh, and natty kind of looking, so I had to, I had I spent the first twenty minutes uh, thawing with my fingers the hair on my head, just sort of icicles that would float off when I jump into the bus. So, in my school uh, house uh, was the average class size was four kids. Um, ours just happened to be 12, but normally it's four and it's little tiny town, 146 people is where I, uh, with the town size was. So I go to school, come back, go to school. I never really got to a bigger school until I was in seventh grade. That was 180 kids. It's still, I was, a, uh, you know, pretty, I started off pretty slow and pretty indolent, not much direction. Uh, I spent most of my time look, lying under my back, looking at the sky and seeing whether the nuclear missile silos were, were uh, coming and whether there were going to be a bomb in one of those airplanes that coming out of South, South North Dakota. So it's quite different than where I am now. So uh, talk to us about how you developed a passion for science and medicine. Was that something that, um, that where the foundations were laid during that window of your life or did that come later? Well, I was so shy and so withdrawn that when I showed up in college, uh, I found out that gosh, uh, I could start over with new friends. Uh, science was exciting. I had a set of mentors and set of uh, friends that uh, let me keep growing. Um, I still was relatively shy, uh, withdrawn when I uh, was approaching the end of college. And, and then I, um, my friend and I said, oh, well, why don't, he said, well, why don't you just run for student body president? Because that'll have something to put on my resume when I apply to medical school. So I ran as the, uh, it can't be that hard platform with no experience. So uh, I run as an underdog against the establishment. So I, I learned so much about uh, life, about administrative uh, politics, uh, 
organizational issues during that year. So it's like it closed out my college year with the not just science, not just friendships, but really the the bigger big story picture of uh, of of college. So the shy kid from Minnesota discovers his inner rebel and runs against the establishment, which actually was a good foundation for your work after you graduate from medical school. But so let's let's go there. How um, how did you uh, decide to go to the medical school you went to, and what was your what was your vision for your future uh, as a doctor? Well, I didn't know much about medicine either, so I just applied to the three schools in Minnesota. I took the one that took me and went in and. But that first um, month, uh, when I uh, saw Maggie Kuhn, who was the head of the Great Panthers, and uh, Butler, who was the head of the National Institute of Aging, and, uh, and a student leader all working on uh, the age, geriatrics, young and old, I was inspired that that's it. That's what I want to be a thought leader on. That's what I want to do and, instead of just IT. Uh, and that, uh, that took me uh, to you know, that hybrid of science, medicine, and, uh, and social media type thing. This is even before social media popped up. It, uh, it was still important. So you knew you wanted to be a thought leader and you knew that you had to develop um, tools that would allow you to express your thoughts, uh, but they were not social media tools or you certainly didn't have early access to social media then. So what were your tools that you used to express your thoughts? and to demonstrate your uh, leadership on these important issues related to AIDS and, uh, and uh, geriatric AIDS in particular? Well, I, I had mostly been working on my education. So I did my medicine. I was, the, there's this medical organization of you know, medical students that I wanted to um, be president of. And so I ran regional meetings, uh, meetings as many as 200 faculty in, in Minnesota. And then when I was about ready to run for president, I realized, oh, I don't have any charisma. How is anybody going to vote for me if I don't, haven't figured that out yet? Um, you know, the talent, the, the interest, the, the being able to work on things. So then I was sitting around thinking, well, oh, uh, then uh, I should do something. So I was, uh, I realized I was good at only one thing at that point, applying for financial aid. So I, I said, oh, I got to have a something to do to apply for financial aid. So I applied for a graduate program in the School of Public Health. So I became an epidemiologist during that year between medicine, uh, medical school and residency. So all of a sudden that's when my eyes opened saying, if I am gonna be a thought leader, if I'm gonna do any work, those are the tools. It was just you know, those, one of those accidents. And as long as you keep the ball, eye on the ball, all of a sudden, uh, I had the tools to question my medical uh, faculty uh, that I can question the, the medical articles the, and, uh, and write on that subject. So let's, let's tie up this piece of your, of your journey, your educational journey. So you have, you have a bachelor's degree, you have a, um, you have a medical degree, and you have a master's in public health. Is that the, is that the total that's of it. your educational? And then uh, after, that, it's, after that, it's three years of medical residency at because uh, that that's when I said, oh, uh, where can I go now that I don't have to pay in-state tuition anymore? You know, I don't have to worry about, you know, burdening my family with the finances. And that's where I went to, to New York for my residency. So where did you do your residency? At what hospital? I went to Beth Israel Medical Center in Manhattan. And I liked that because they had housing. 
And, and when you come and, from Minnesota and you hear that, oh, I'm I might not make it through the first year, I might get murdered, but or or accosted <laughs> when I go to New York. And so, of course, New York's not like that. But it's uh, but if you're looking from a farm in Minnesota, it going to residency in New York did seem a, a bit daunting. So we're glad you're able to come to the big city in New York, where uh, Matt and I have spent a lot of time. And uh, actually, uh, three of my children will be living in New York City in the very near future. So let's uh, let's talk about what your experiences was, was like as a resident at Beth Israel. And by the way, had you learned anything about tick diseases during your undergraduate education, during your during your medical education, um, you know, in medical school, um, during your during your uh, your your study um, studies in uh, public health, any any discussion or uh, any information about ticks or tick diseases at that time? No, I was not uh, given any instructions that I could recall about ticks uh, in medical school, graduate school, or residency. Of course, I was focusing on the geriatric part of medicine, uh, not uh, not Lyme. In fact, I. I didn't really uh, see anything with regarding the ticks or Lyme until I came to Mount Kisco in 1987. Well, let's talk about your experience as a resident, right? You, I'm sure during your, your work as a resident, you were working with folks who were dealing with diseases like Alzheimer's disease. Uh, were there any symptomology at that time that now thinking back, you believe perhaps may have been um, related to a, an undiagnosed uh, tick disease such as Lyme disease? Uh, yes, uh, great question, because uh, one of the most common admissions was for hypoglycemia. So they had all of the same symptoms you might have with Lyme, you know, with the fatigue, the poor concentration, the irritability, the headaches, the, uh, all kinds of things. And so, but the feeling at that point is it must be a low sugar. So I'd always get these pages, urgent pages that I have to run up the three or four uh, flights to go get a blood test right away to catch that sugar. And so I, once again, it would go off, uh, they'd be my patient, I'd be running off again, you know, almost like a 911 call to try to catch a sugar. I never caught a low sugar, but certainly diet made a difference and they were affected by uh, simple sugars, but I, I didn't know that that might end up being a bigger picture that you don't see many hypoglycemic emissions anymore, but you certainly get an awful lot of people with those same problems who have tick-borne illnesses. I just didn't know the two were connected. What about dementia? Uh, you know, we interviewed Dr. Alan McDonald on this podcast, and uh, he's he's become one of the leaders in connecting um, uh, Lyme disease to Lewy body dementia. So, at that time, uh, when you were a resident, were you dealing with folks who were dealing with dementia? Do you now believe that many of those folks may have been suffering from a tick disease rather than uh, rather than some of the other traditional connections to, uh, to dementia? Well, it's a pretty complicated uh, uh, answer because um, you know, my graduate work was on delirium, which is what looks like dementia, but it's acute confusion. It's, uh, it's from an illness and, and they, they come out of it often with cognitive problems, uh, mood problems, uh, alertness. But in geriatrics, um, you know, my, when I went to be in a teaching nursing home to uh, where every, every one of my patients had Alzheimer's, their average age was 84, is that, uh, you know, it, got, it gets confusing because most Lyme patients I have are not like that. So it, it's, it's not so clear cut how many people with 
with Alzheimer's or dementia have Lyme as a part of it. And so, you know, but often that's uh, people at that generation didn't look at Lyme very hard. They didn't at all, right? Much. And so therefore, you know, I know that at, at, if the average age is 84 and it hadn't done anything for 40 years, um, it's tough to, to, you know, accept it. I, I often find that families aren't ready to look at Lyme anyway. You know, at that point, they just accept that they're 94, they have dementia, they don't look a second time at, at whether there's a cause. So, so whereas other, point, other people who are younger to, do have a tendency to at least get it a second time and, and uh, give their, take this cognitive, this memory uh, and mood uh, much more serious early on. So take us to your journey to Mount Kisco. After you complete your residency, where uh, where's your next uh, set of stops before you move into uh, private practice in Mount Kisco? Well, I transitioned as, a, as an assistant professor of medicine in, uh, in Westchester County, New York. And I was a director of an Alzheimer's unit of, of wanderers. They could walk, they could talk, they could do things. And then another unit that were more bed bound. And so I... I, once again, uh, I did some uh, writing and getting to know research. Uh, one of my uh, favorite uh, research projects I did was, you know, could somebody with dementia do complicated things? So what I did was I, I had a bowling league in the, in the nursing home where I had a, all these people with severe dementia, quite old, uh, lined up, and I had a bunch of balls and, and uh, bowling pins. And so... Uh, amazing how many could retain all those uh, tasks of being able to bowl. And then, of course, when the balls were split, I mean, the pins were split, they they seemed to collectively know uh, that that's a problem. And so you think well, they don't know, don't know the name, they don't know this or that, but I thought they certainly knew a, a, a mathematical problem of how are you going to handle the, the split pins. And yet, if you talk to them, they wouldn't uh, know a thing. They They certainly didn't know me. You know, I'd have to introduce myself all the time and say, I'm Dr. Cameron, I'm your doctor. And they'd be excited to meet their doctor. But five minutes later, they wouldn't remember me. Interesting. So how did, how did that then develop into, uh, into your private practice um, in Mount Kisco? Well, they, they, when I started here uh, to try to do geriatrics in Mount Kisco, with the Lyme patients that were here, um, I found that uh, often the people that knew the Lyme the best were not just the few doctors who were writing about it, but often the patients, uh, leaders that were out there. Uh, so I was pretty used to being social networking, speaking, and, net and understanding, and uh, you know, really uh, uh, taking, out, taking what I can from, uh, from the community. And so very quickly, I, I matched my patients to the published literature to the thought leaders that are that are the patients out there and very quickly I kind of uh, got a sense of uh, how to take care of someone with Lyme disease. So let's pause on that for a second because I think that's an important part of the story. So you you have this strong educational uh, and experiential background in uh, working with patients who have different illnesses or, or, or conditions relating to old age, and you, and you open up an office in Mount Kisco expecting that you're going to develop a practice around that discipline, but your community has a different set of needs, right? Your community needs uh, someone who can help them deal with this bacterial infection or this 
polymicrobial set of, 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 of infections that they're, that they're dealing with, and you make the decision to pivot to meet the needs of your community rather than to build this business that you had envisioned that you'd be building based on your experience. Yeah, I think uh, in geriatrics, I often refer to three parts, you know, biological, psychological, and social. So there are certainly tick-borne issues that were biological and all of the symptoms, all the neurologic issues, everything we have. Then the psychological is that there were plenty of neuropsych issues, you know, the, the moods, the uh, focus, concentration, the fatigue, and then um, social means they're there with their family, their mom, their school teacher, and it becomes a, a social issue. And so that's geriatrics. But the same three points uh, uh, were, were a problem for a Lyme disease patient and their moms or their dads. And so it's a, it was just a perfect segue from one uh, topic to another way, another topic. So what were the symptomology that you were seeing early on when you made this pivot of the framework that you had developed with the biological, social, and psychological elements of geriatrics to the biological, social, and psychological elements of treating patients who were presenting with, uh, with Lyme symptomology? Well, let me give you an example of one of the first patients I had where they were um, taking doxycycline weren't doing very well. I knew from the patient community that there were other thoughts, other things I needed to do. Uh, there wasn't much written yet. Uh, and so I ended up sending that patient to Dr. Steer, Alan Steer up in Boston. And so they came back saying, well, why don't you try amoxicillin? And so I thought, oh, there's more than, you know, this is a very beginning. And so even Dr. Steer said, why don't you try something else? And it worked uh, for that patient. So it's a, in that just that first case, uh, all of a sudden, I already realized it's a, a biological. Uh, the person had a lot of psych issues, and it was a social issue. And fortunately, uh, a simple thing like amoxicillin came through. Now, things have changed a lot over the years. But so let's pause my... there for a minute. So, so you said this was in the early days of Lyme. So, how long after um, Steer made his observation about the Lyme cluster? was this window of, um, of, your, of your practice? Did it predate Bergdorfer's um, identification of the bacteria or was it post uh, Bergdorfer's uh, identification of the bacteria that some believe is Lyme disease? Dr. Bergdorfer's got credit in, I believe, 1982, where instead of calling it uh, like Dr. Steer, who did a lot of work, they didn't call it steri. They added it. They called it Dr. Bergdorferi. They just added I to Bergdorfer's name. Right. And so already in five years later, I show up in Mount Kisco. And, you know, all of those things, those observations I made, the patients I took care of those first three years is just when I said, you know, we, got to, we should write about this. You know, why don't we uh, do a paper? And then, of course, other people have the same thoughts. So Dr. Steer and his colleagues, I think the first author was Logigian, in 1990 wrote a paper called Chronic Neurologic Lyme. And everything I was seeing was in that article. That they didn't always know why it occurred, that, that overwhelming fatigue where the immune system was so busy, uh, they were kind of tired and wired, didn't get much out of sleep, they couldn't concentrate every... Uh, mood you can think of is up uh, in lightheadedness. 
just a whole range of things, even weird things like hearing loss in four people and encephalopathy, which is what I, geriatric doctors focus in on, which your brain's not quite right. And so that was, and also the treatment of two weeks of IV rocephin for that group worked for about one out of three. So already that paper in 1990 said, well, not everybody's getting better, which is what I was seeing. And not, not every treatment was working, even IV for two weeks wasn't working. So I thought, wow, is it, that it should be coasting from here. I should be able to treat Lyme, take care of Lyme. Uh, it's accepted, it's established, it's a, it's a New England Journal of Medicine type material. And, uh, and little did I know that that was uh, maybe uh, uh, just the tip of the iceberg. And, and, and after that, it sunk for, it's been sinking for years. You can't even see the tip of the iceberg half the time. So let's, let's explore that a little bit. So um, you find yourself coming in touch with some of the leaders in the community very early on, right? So you said you knew, you didn't, you didn't study Lyme disease in, in college, medical school, and or your residency. So all of your educational background had nothing uh, that gave you the foundation for Lyme disease. Uh, in fact, you're now only five years post uh, the bacteria that Bergdorfer is, uh, is uh, identifying as the cause of Lyme disease. So, and, and you're, now, you're now finding yourself in contact with some of the, some of the leaders in the community at that time, including um, you know, rheumatologist Steer. So um, how was how your now practice developing? How, how, do you, how are you developing a Lyme practice at that very early stage in your, uh, in your uh, clinical experience? Well, I think there's two parts. One is that I was a good listener. So when I had patients that were uh, not doing so well, what are the other alternatives? Uh, there were some of the thought leaders that were actually uh, former patients that were out there that were putting together a list of speakers that helped. But as an epidemiologist, I uh, know for the first time how to read literature, how to see the strengths and weaknesses of articles, what's published. And so that one year gap, right, between medical school residency where I learned epidemiology gave me the tools to read what's published, what's not published and, uh, and help with that hybridization helped an awful lot. So now you said a minute ago that um, because you were, you, you were coming across during your research, New England Journal of Medicine type articles, you felt that you had the freedom to clinically treat your patients without any risk to your yourself or your license. And then there was sort of this, uh, this sort of this fall off. And I, you know, I'm, I'm really interested to, you know, sort of hear the history, you know, from, from your perspective of what it was like to be a practitioner who thought he had the freedom based on the research that was available to treat his patients based on what you were seeing clinically. And then, find yourself in a position where perhaps you were not given the freedom to treat your patients clinically based on the observations that you were making? I think that, um, you know, the, the clinical trials started showing up where they, uh, they started recruiting uh, patients through the, the patient network, through the, the social media type network. And already off the bat that uh, there were the called the Klepner trials, NIH-sponsored trials by Klepner. And the design didn't seem very well. They were looking at quality of life. Um, they hadn't used the quality of life very much. Uh, so I didn't like the design issues. And 
And then of course, who wants to be in a clinical trial if you're sick? So the people that were signing up ended up having had three previous treatments. They were sick for 4.7 years. And so if you take someone's already been failing treatment, give them 4.7 year gap, now you're treating a, a fourth time. That group didn't do very well. And so I could see as an epidemiologist, that if you design a study and it, the actual people enrolling are, uh, are the toughest and tough, they weren't looking for co-infections, they weren't treating for Babesia, is that, that they keep using that particular trial as, a, uh, as, as proof that you, you shouldn't be treating. And uh, as an epidemiologist, I thought it was pretty uh, outrageous with so many design problems to be using that trial to deny treatment to people. So how did you manage that as a business person and as a licensed professional? How did you manage treating all these sick people who are coming to you who you knew had Lyme disease and you were, again, building a, building a, a business around meeting a need in this, in this suburban community? How did you deal with that and keep yourself uh, both safe and, um, and in business while at the same time meeting the needs of the community that you were serving? Well, one thing is I stayed in solo practice so that I wouldn't have the my peers uh, put pressure on or tell me what to do or how to manage it. So it gave me some freedom. Now, it took extra work when you're uh, when you're in a, in a solo practice. The other part is that I had to uh, kind of get uh, go my own path. Is that there's plenty of uh, my colleagues who were critical of my my work in the field. Uh, there was one doctor who was uh, very important in the community who said that um, if I ever had a chance to testify against Dr. Cameron, well, he didn't say my name. He just said, if I ever got a chance to testify, this doctor who happens to be this, this, and this, I'll be the first one to stand to uh, um, testify against him. And so um, it wasn't a time that was uh, uh, very uh, supportive. And so that part of that strengths back in, in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota. And, uh, and Morris uh, meant that uh, I had some inner strength that I had to pull out uh, during that, uh, during that uh, difficult time. Yeah, and, and, and you, of course you had that, that rebel that was born out of the desire to run against the establishment when you were in college. So this was, this was sort of building up to a point where, uh, where you had all the tools you needed, emotional tools at least, and the social tools you needed to buck the system so that you can treat the people who needed your help in the community where you, were, uh, you, you had made the commitment to serve. So <clears throat> talk to us about, um, about how the line, well, actually, let me ask you one more question about th this issue before we move on. And that is, um, how are the insurance companies treating you at that time? Because one of the biggest challenges that practitioners have in the, in the medical community is that in many ways, their practices are being run by the insurance carriers. And the insurance carriers, of course, are, are incentivized not to pay for certain types of treatment. So were you at this early stage in, in the development of your, of your business, were you having trouble getting paid from insurance carriers? Well, at that point, uh, when you're young, I had a lot of energy, as opposed to now. So uh, um, at that point, I was part of 20 healthcare plans. And so, you know, it was, it was of course, extra challenging since I wanted to use that energy to work on the $5, $10 copay structure, try to make it work within the plan. And so the plans at, at that point were, um, 
if you're part of the network, they were fairly often supportive, at least uh, probably two out of three, I could get what I needed to because I was in the network. But there was growing uh, problems after a decade of that of the HMOs uh, learning how to say no. Um, there is a, uh, a time where one of the uh, major carriers in the area decided to do a quality assurance uh, report on, and it just so happened that they did a quality assurance around the kind of patients I would take care of, you know, Lyme patients who needed this intramuscular shot called bicillin. So, you know, I did my quality assurance, I passed my quality assurance, they put it away, but they happened to send that list of patients over to the medical board. And then once the medical board got those names, that was in um, about the year 2000, that that started a, a, a journey of dealing with the medical board. So I'd only been in practice uh, you know, at that point for 13 years when the medical board had a list of patients that were referred to them by the, by the insurance carrier. So let's talk about that sort of, you know, incestuous relationship that often develops between insurance carriers who have an incentive not to pay and these medical boards who, of course, can sanction doctors for, um, I, I guess, taking steps that, that they believe are necessary to clinically treat their patients, but may not be um, in strict compliance with the state of research at that moment. Uh, how, how did that affect your, um, your practice? Well, I continued to practice. I, I didn't, uh, you know, back off because in my heart, uh, in and what I've published and what I've written, it I, I have to go with what uh, I feel is right for my patients. So, during that fight, I also had the, another twenty years of dealing with this sort of background cloud of the uh, medical board, and, and not alone. There are other medical uh, doctors who. Uh, uh, who have had to deal with those kind of conflicts. Like Dr. Berscano was, um, I can mention Joe Berscano because he was a leader even before I was involved with Lyme. He had years of fighting with the medical board. He's, uh, I can mention because he talks about it a lot. He shares his experience. And he, 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 uh, he did on this podcast. Uh, he, oh. he, he shared that, that journey with us on this podcast. Right. So that therefore he was a contemporary of mine. And so um, I wasn't about to let that... Uh, problem with the medical board uh, stop, but it's still, you know, uh, it certainly interferes with other doctors. Other doctors say, well, I don't want to go follow Dr. Berriscano's path or Dr. Cameron's path because I don't want the medical board to take action or, or at least even intimidate me because, you know, I have a mother. Well, so did we all do, is that I didn't want to go to my mother and say, by the way, I'm not a doctor anymore. The medical board took my license away. And so I'd hate to break my mother's heart. So um, despite having contacts with people like Dr. Biroscano, who had to spend over a million dollars defending himself and seeing that as a model that you had to stay away from, um, and having insurance companies reporting you to the medical board, you were able to continue to treat your patients clinically the way you believe they should be treated, but you had to have a lot of anxiety, and I'm sure your family had to be very concerned about, um, you know, as you said, calling your mother up and saying, Hey, I'm not a doctor anymore. After, uh, after she was bragging to everybody in, you know, in the Minnesota farm community that her, that her child is now a leading doctor in Mount Kisco. So 
what what kind of social pressure did that put on you and and do you think it caused you to pause it all when deciding whether or not you were going to continue to develop this line practice that your community was desperate to have well i had uh, a wife who was very supportive so that helped I, I, I got an award uh, several times for you know this this award called Best Doctors in New York. It's kind of a marketing type, but the nice part is that they put out a book one year, and that book said uh, Best Doctors in New York. So I bought one and sent to my mother. So that was uh, so she has on her shelf a book that says Best Doctors in New York and it's dog eared to uh, with my name in it. So that was insurance for my mother. Okay, and uh, but but still, like my interest in publishing, and my willingness to publish was uh, on on Lyme was uh, always kind of running into obstacles. So when I finally said, "Well, let me publish," I, I uh, decided, "Well, why don't I write practice treatment guidelines for this organization called ILADS? You know, International Lyme and Associated Diseases yes. Society." So. I wrote. Let's pause. Let's pause that for a second. So, how how did you how did you find ILADS and and was this built out of a desire to now find a group of people who you could not only work with on the Lyme related issues but also maybe have some level of protection so that you're not isolated um, and doing this alone and and sort of being picked off by some of the um, you know some of the doctors who, for example, were volunteering to testify against you in your own community. Well, I wasn't completely sure I was going to have uh, protections as a, as their society. Uh, so, because the oral organizations uh, only have a limited budget, so uh, but I thought that that given I was um, you know having troubles with the medical board, I thought maybe if I have treatment guidelines that would help that organization and would help me, that it would be evidence based and published in a peer-reviewed journal, which all the articles I use, uh, including that New England Journal of Medicine article with Steer and Legigian, if I put all that together and publish it, then this organization that I'm in could demonstrate that we're doing evidence-based medicine, that, we're, that we know what we're doing and there's plenty of support for what we do. And so that, that I was the first author on and got it published in a journal. So let's talk about publications and challenges with publications because we've we've heard from uh, from many doctors um, like yourself during that window of time who were who are trying to either get clinical findings or research findings published in major journals. They found themselves being blocked because gatekeepers like Alan Steer were were preventing uh, or had enough influence on the boards of these uh, publications to prevent people from publishing their 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 articles. Did you have any challenges with getting published? Yeah, the one of the uh, international meetings I, in Italy, I did present several things uh, in as abstract form, uh, and so uh, one of the doctors was at that meeting, and uh, and I presented on amoxicillin treatment, you know, case series, and the doctor raised his hand and said, "Oh, what about the side effects? Uh, what about the problems?" And I said, "Well, I've already laid that out," uh, and he said, "Well." I don't think this is a very good article. So I said, well, listen, I've been looked at every article at this international meeting and I can't find one article better than this one. And so, yes, it has its weaknesses, but it's still uh, there for, uh, for discussion. So he sat down. So it's, uh, 
that uh, I don't forget that particular discussion. It's the same guy who said, by the way, I'll, I'll, I'll gladly testify against him if he if I ever called to duty. And uh, yeah. So the, so Dr. Hammer, there, there are a number of different ways, unfortunately, that, um, you know, that Lyme patients have been hurt by the research community, right? One of the ways that um, patients have been hurt by the research community is that um, that the standard of care was limited um, by, um, you know, by the uh, limiting of, of access to the journals. For example, of course, the standard of care that, that doctors use is based on, based on um, what is accepted in the community. And when, what's accepted in the community, of course, is, is based on what's in, in these research uh, journals. So by blocking you from a research journal, not only did it prevent you from having the protection you needed to treat your patients, but it blocked other doctors from having um, the protection they would need by, by uh, using your articles as, as proof of a standard of care, right? But then, of course, there's a second level, which you also face, which is, which is that uh, uh, there are doctors who are volunteering to essentially um, testify against you because it becomes a threat to your license. And then we have the third level of threat, which, of course, is the medical board. So, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that many doctors would shy away from treating Lyme patients, which is something we see. Um, because there are so many different levels of risk that are that are um, that a doctor treating Lyme patients has to face. Yeah, I thought I'd mention one more example is that Dr. Wormser, who uh, ran a, the next international Lyme meeting, I, I had submitted seven abstracts, and abstracts means they're the beginning of the article. They lay out what I wanted to accomplish, uh, the design, those kind of things. So they were all turned down, all seven of those, uh, by uh, uh, that, uh, that committee and Wormser was the head of the committee. And so it's, uh, it, that was uh, intimidating. The other thing is that led to a protest uh, from, the, from the community of Lyme patients uh, against the uh, uh, Wormser's organization. And so of course that was in Manhattan across the street. And so that type of protest uh, certainly created uh, a conflict between doctors who don't like to get criticized, like Dr. Wormser, right. and uh, doctors like myself who want to get heard, and, uh, and the patient community. And so it, uh, it was uh, like a symptom of a problem of what I needed to publish and uh, what couldn't get published. And so you end up um, coming up with these kind of scurry studies, like it couldn't be in the study unless you had a particular criteria. That's what happened with Dr. Fallon from Columbia. You couldn't be in the study, you couldn't be in the trial unless you had exactly the right blood tests. So only one out of 100 ever even el were eligible. And then who wants to be in a, a clinical trial at Columbia if you can't do more than placebo? So the average person enrolling was nine years old. I mean, I mean I'm sorry that not they were they were sick for nine years. So you get these again scurry studies that are not designed uh, that you can that are very helpful to my patients. So the gatekeepers were not only taking control of the boards of the medical journals, which would then determine what would or wouldn't get published, but then when they're setting standards for what would or wouldn't get published. They set standards that were almost impossible to overcome, and again, controlling the the um, the medical literature in a way that wouldn't allow practitioners in the clinical setting to have the protection they needed in order to be able to treat Lyme patients. 
Uh, right. Uh, the the Infectious Disease Society of America, their guidelines, which um, um, I thought disturbing, said that chronic issues were nothing more than the aches and pains of daily living. That was verbatim exactly from uh, their article. And they also questioned the existence uh, of chronic Lyme issues. And so if you question the existence or the severity, that led to the guidelines that I wrote, that I rewrote those guidelines uh, so that uh, twice I, I did the counterpoint, got them published, and yet uh, those guidelines are ignored. It's still, uh, you know, that the, the dismissive. The only thing that's changed now is they said, well, they are sick, but let's call it post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, which means they've had the treatment, so it's post-treatment, it's Lyme disease, and let's call it a syndrome. We're not going to grant that that it could be a persistent infection. I'm not going to grant that it could be a co-infection. Therefore, uh, I'm going to um, use that, that weapon to not treat someone. Just call it post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. So Dr. Cameron, we, we actually have uh, been familiar with your, um, your ILADS guidelines, the evidence assessment and guideline um, recommendations for doctors for Lyme disease. And we actually, in our Take by Blueprint, recommend to um, our community that they download those guidelines that you've written and bring it with them to their practitioner so that they have a set of guidelines that they can use. So we can't thank you enough for being, first of all, brave enough to do all the work that you've done, but then to be kind enough to publish that and make that available through um, through ILADS. I know um, at least the, the the current edition of it indicates that uh, Lorraine Johnson and Elizabeth, uh, Dr. Elizabeth uh, Maloney, also assisted you in in uh, in developing that. But that's a an awesome set of guidelines that we are consistently recommending that people use and bring with them to their practitioners so that they can get the care that they need. And but for your work, that wouldn't be available to the community. So I again, I I want to thank you for that that brilliant work that you've done. Thank you. So Dr. Cameron, before I hand you over to Matt, who's dying to ask you questions, I, I do want to I do want to ask you one more question. As one of the Lyme pioneers, um, you know, I, I'd like your opinion about the challenges associated with uh, a definition for Lyme disease, right? I mean, I, I almost feel like uh, you know, um, you know, this is a Vince Lombardi moment where he walks into every football season when he was a coach of the Green Bay Packers and he holds up the football and says, gentlemen. This is a football. And I, I feel like we have that same kind of problem with Lyme disease, which is, folks, this is a definition of Lyme disease. And almost everyone that we ask seems to have a different definition of Lyme disease. We've had, we've had some folks to, who define Lyme disease, such as Dr. Bill Rawls, as a polymicrobial infection uh, that, that will cause, um, cause uh, multi-organ uh, uh, failure. Uh, we have folks. Uh, we have folks uh, like Dr. Um, Dr. Uh, Leslie uh, Douglas, who uh, who said to me, "Richard, Lyme disease is um, is a um, uh, an infection from a single bacteria, uh, Borrelia burgdorferi." And then then we've had people like Dr. Alan McDonald who said, "Hey, we need to divorce from the term Lyme because it really doesn't have a de de uh, definition, and we should be using terms." Uh, that more define the specific either bacteria or protozoa or virus that's causing the, the illness. So where do you fall on, on the definition of Lyme disease as a, as a pioneer? Well, I, I tend to use the word Lyme to cover the whole umbrella of um, tick-borne illnesses, you know, from Babesia to uh, 
anaplasmosis to things we haven't discovered. But that's just more more because it, I need to have something that's easy to say, easy to digest. And so I, I, um, I haven't uh, done anything but criticize some of the uh, names out there just for educational purposes. That's why when I use post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome as a uh, term is to complain about why it's keeping people from getting treated. It's keeping people from doctors taking them serious. And so it's more of uh, me grumbling. I, I certainly uh, I'm like the polymicrobial theory and I base my practice on that. There's more than one infection in a tick and that that a single treatment of doxycycline only is one dimension. There's so many other things that can get offered. I also find that that oral treatment is so much more effective and easier to work with. Um, I do IV, but not near as much as you would think. So when you say there, the, the, the oral form now, again, the, the other problem with Lyme disease and, and folks suffering from a disease that has no definition is we have this acute form and then we have this chronic form and, yeah. you know, and, and, and what are we talking about when we're talking about when we're treating, when we're treating, a, a, you know, this disease. So we have, we have this polymicrobial infection that is going to, of course, uh, um, cause a disease in many different organs and functions, which could be acute and it could be chronic. And it's, you know, I mean, again, it just almost seems like there is just no definition for what we, you know, what we're facing and what impact does that have on you when you're, when you're trying to assist your patients in making their peace with the disease that they have and overcome, overcoming the grief associated with that diagnosis? Well, I find that there's a lot of people who get treated who've been sick for a long time where they find, gosh, the treatment wasn't that complicated. It was doxycycline. And then you treat the Babesia, which is a different pill or liquid. So it's the treatment. Lots of, a lot of people keep hearing how awful it is. Uh, put off treatment, never get around to treatment, or they'll take one treatment for three weeks of doxycycline. And so there's so many people missing the opportunity to get treated. And there's so many people that get better. You know, if you read on the internet, there's plenty of people that are doing poorly. But there's, you know, since I have an active practice, I see people within a, a day or two of them calling. Um, there, I, I could tell you that there's a, there's a lot of optimism, a lot of hope out there for all those people who are sitting on the sideline waiting. Just get to it. Go to somebody that does more than the one standard treatment. And don't be thinking that IV is the only answer. Even if you don't have insurance that covers IV, we'll get on with something simpler. And so I think that uh, it's just a reminder is not assuming the fatalistic approach, uh, not assuming that, that it's a done deal, that not everybody's tough. There, I fight for the tough ones too, but my biggest task is getting the average person who's sick uh, to take it seriously and get on with it. So Dr. Cameron, how do you test for Lyme and co-infections? Because as you noted, it is a polymicrobial infection. And when you're dealing with things like Ehrlichia, Babesia, Anaplasma, and you know the Lyme, the Lyme bacteria, and now we know there's many, many different strains and testing here in the States only looks for certain strains, not including European strains. It just overcomplicates the whole diagnostic component of tick-borne illness. So when a patient comes to see you, what kind of testing do you do to try to find out as, as best as possible what co-infections and tick-borne illnesses your patients may be suffering from? Well, I'm always aware uh, that my patients uh, have a budget. 
And so it's pretty easy with the budget to uh, get caught up in this test and that test and all those kind of tests, you know, because there's some specialty labs where it might cost 2000 or more to get uh, tested. So, um, uh, and then if you do it more than once, then 2000 turns into 4000. And then if you do the alternative medicine treatments, uh, that involves often uh, lots of tests for like mold and other things. So even those are great things, they're great uh, in, um, for some patients is that I don't like to start there. I like to just start with a more modest budget. Why not just take it, the, the labs that aren't that exciting, go to the local uh, um, labs uh, and just get it at least one Lyme test, uh, the ELISA, one Western bot Lyme, uh, some antibodies to Bartonella, uh, anaplasmosis, Ehrlichia, and Babesia. So I figured that's the core. Uh, if I can get those done and they're covered by an insurance, um, there's no cost and I can get on with treatment. I do grant that, gee, I, how, do, how do I trust it? And I don't. Now, New York ha has funny rules anyway. They don't approve a lot of tests. A lot of tests aren't approved. So. I just figure I'll just get those covered. I'll only do the more complicated test if somebody has an extra 2000 in their pocket. Uh, and, 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 but otherwise uh, I keep it pretty simple. If somebody really has a lot of complexities and they wanna to go to alternative medicine and they have enough time and budget, there's an endless amount of tests that can be done for, for herbal type things, uh, mold type treatments. So I keep it pretty simple up front and then get on with the treatment. Dr. Cameron, let's just put a scenario out there. You have a patient, John Doe. He exhibits all the classic symptoms of Lyme disease and Babesia. You send him for testing through, let's say, LabCorp, which is covered by his insurance, and the lab work comes back and nothing is positive. Do you then proceed to make a clinical diagnosis, or are you going to recommend one of these more expensive tests that are specialty labs? Well, I, I uh, prefer clinical judgment. Uh, and then uh, because I'm, I'm talking to someone, I'm working with them, is that I, I offer the option of, you know, with the budget and time to, to do those specialty labs, but it, I don't make that a requirement to use clinical judgment. I, because I'm trying to keep the budget down, I'll also, you know, often involve a specialist for other things like a neurologist, rheumatologist, a cardiologist, endocrine. And so I'll, I'll, instead of going to a Lyme one, I just go to somebody that's just in the plan, in the network to make sure there's no other disease that I'm overlooking. So that's usually in the budget for these plans. Uh, and, and then the prescriptions, especially if you do oral, is in the budget. So be surprised, other than my office visit, uh, everything else is covered. And so, you know, certainly there are people uh, I know where that doesn't work, but as an entry level, even if someone's been sick for five years, entry level is so much you can do on a budget. So it sounds like you're brave enough to give clinical diagnoses to a variety of your patients, but we know many doctors and we know many patients we've talked to that have said their doctors, although they believe they have a tick-borne illness, are afraid to give a clinical diagnosis because there can be consequences. It can be risky. So, you know, how do you, how do you face that hurdle when, again, you talked about you had some, some exposure to the medical board back in the day, whereas giving so many clinical diagnoses could put you back on the radar again. Well, I, I uh, as an epidemiologist, know that once you get a positive test, you don't know for sure it's a, a false positive or a true positive. Uh, and also once you get treated, you end up with antibodies that stay around even when you get 
three weeks of treatment in. So if you got a positive and you dangle the positive in front of the medical board or in front of your colleagues at my hospital, is just having a positive, you know, there's endless debate about is it false positive or not, or is it a uh, residual left over? So I don't feel like I'm in a very good position to have, have show what we're positive on something. So if they're truly gonna go after me, uh, then I look like a nut if I if all I have is a positive blood test and no clinical judgment. And I, even mycoplasma, which is positive on an endless amount of people who aren't sick, is that um, I don't like to dangle that in front of the doctors saying that's what I'm judging it on. So that's a decision I make. If somebody wants to rely on finding a positive test somewhere, then that that's, uh, you know, it's always a doctor's prerogative and how they want to practice. Um, I also uh, mentioned like one of the specialty labs, um, I, I guess I could mention is, is Igenics. Yeah. Um, because they're at least out there public is there is a, a five out of 10 ban criteria where the CDC is happy. And it's a great it's a great Western blood test. They have an IgG and IgM that tell you different things about Lyme, but they have a a two out of ten criteria that if you're positive on that, you're not positive by the CDC. And so a lot of doctors criticized that criteria. Now, where that criteria came from was Dearborn, Michigan, year years ago, 1994, Igenics came along, Dr. Harris said, well, two bands seems to be as good as, two out of 10 is as good as five, or maybe a 31 band is as good as anything. Um, so the Igenics is bold enough to at least say, hey, these two bands are pretty predictive. So when it comes to this sort of alphabet soup of test is that I choose to use clinical judgment more, but I certainly know a lot of my esteemed colleagues looking for some kind of band, something that they can put their hat on. So really this testing is to protect the doctor's, you know, I guess to be blunt about it, to protect the doctor's ass because they can try to use that if somebody comes after them. But what you're telling us, Dr. Cameron, is that really it could be a false positive. It could be residual from a previous infection, or it could be something like an hygienics test, which isn't even CDC recognized. So what good is that is your argument, I believe. That's it. And so that's why it might be um, helpful, but I'm just telling you from my conclusion, because I'm an epidemiologist, uh, uh, been around for a long time and know uh, the weaknesses of a test. And uh, that's, that's, that's why um, I um, use clinical judgment, but I respect my colleagues who want, want some tests to show for it. Well, I can tell you that personally, I believe clinical is a really important factor for a diagnosis because one of the things Rich and I see time and time again when people on this podcast have success is they're listening to their body, they're documenting their symptomology and what's happening, and they're confirmed with their doctors to make determinations about what's going on. I'm experiencing these symptoms and therefore I have Bartonella. I'm experiencing these symptoms and therefore I have Babesia. And they're treating based on the patient listening to the signals their body is giving them and then having success. So that's kind of what you're doing from a medical perspective is you're speaking to your patients, you're obser observing what's going on, and then you're making a, a conclusion and testing it out is what you're doing, it sounds like. Right. Well stated. It's a, usually people with a tick-borne, they're either quite sick in multiple areas, like 10, 12 areas, or they're fine with barely any symptoms. Usually I don't have too many people that fall in the cracks. Once, if it is Lyme, once that immune system goes, 
uh, overreact to the problem. It's almost like a fight or flight. Uh, you know, cytokines are turned high. Uh, it's so intense that you know they're tired, wired, they're drained. That's why fatigue keeps popping up. The sleep keeps popping up. They they can't concentrate or focus because their brain's kind of on wired. The sensory system's up, so they're sensitive to light, heat, um, the heat and cold and noise. They're the autonomic nervous system is not working, which is the automatic things like getting up quick, moving quick, their stomach's off. And so, so therefore, you know, if, if you're in the business for a while, there's so many different markers that are saying the same thing that, uh, that, it, that it find it easier for me. It just others are looking for a test. So the next thing, before we get into the detail about things like the nervous system, and I love your phrase, tired, wired, and drained, is Rich and I have been observing a general outline of, of steps people take to succeed when treating Lyme disease. I want to see where your, your head is with this. So many people feel before they start treating aggressively, if they're very sick, they have to start by opening up their drainage pathways and addressing detox, right? And that's what they do first. They kind of get their body ready for treatment. Then they, then they whether it be from a blood test or a clinical diagnosis, they start treating the pathogens and continuing on with detox to make sure their body can purge all the die off and the biotoxins being generated in their body. And then some people find that they need to go on a maintenance protocol once they reach remission or become symptom free. So, you know, how do you work with your patients? What's a high level overview of the steps you take? Is that consistent with what we just, just described? Or do you, do you think that our approach is maybe a little bit off? Well, I don't agree with that approach. So, um, what I do is that, um, I feel that the first thing you should do is at least get on with the antibiotic. If it's an infection, um, get go for it, even if it's relatively simple. Now, that there's plenty of patients where they're more complicated, where I tell them, listen, if you're complicated, you can get an integrative medicine person alongside working through uh, the Herxheimer reaction, working through those symptoms. Uh, but if you don't have the budget and time, is I don't like to sit around and wait for some... Uh, um, integrative medicine as the first step. Now, of course, sometimes the integrative medicine people are doing people who've already been treated. So they're, you know, um, so that that's where you get into like, they're, every patient's different. You know, I have people who've gone integrative medicine first. I only get the ones that are still sick. I'm sure there's some integrative medicine people that never see me because they get better with the diet, with you know, with withdrawing uh, certain things from their diet with the herbal things, everything else. So, you know, I, I feel at least what works for me is get on with the infection and only do the other things if they have the budget and time. And then when I get complicated people who I'm having troubles with, then that's the ones that might find it more fruitful, get the budget together and do the integrative. But so that's how I'm involved first. That's my, what I would approach rather than wasting time on the other approaches first. So the majority of your work, wasting time, but I'd say, but I just thought I'd at least be a devil's advocate. No, no, appreciate that. It sounded like it's a pejorative uh, rather than a, a thoughtful approach. So the majority of your patients, you're going to just start killing the infection and treating the pathogen first. And then in your really extreme patients, you may collaborate with some sort of natural doctor or holistic doctor to help open up those more natural pathways. But do you encourage your patients to do things to detox while you're treating? Because we do know that that's something that's very common to have these Herx reactions, right? So where do you fall in the whole Herx debate and, and doing things to help alleviate these Herx reactions that people get when treating Lyme and co-infections? 
Well, I certainly push hard to eat right, take care of yourself, stay away from simple sugars. And so and if you find you're sensitive to milk or gluten is get rid of those things and work on those things. So all of those steps are, are very important. You'd be surprised how much counseling I have to do in my practice to get people to at least shift and change. I do an awful lot of that kind of work, uh, a lot of counseling to get them through the emotional side of Lyme. Uh, the the Herxheimer is interesting because that a lot of the flare-ups you get from an antibiotic are the same flare-ups you've been getting while you're ill. Um, so that, and some people are disappointed. They're saying, well, how come I didn't get a Herxheimer? I was supposed to get a Herxheimer. Maybe I don't have Lyme because I didn't get a Herxheimer. Well, I said, well, you've already been sick up and down as you can always, you're not going to have to always get a Herxheimer. So, and some do. So that's why uh, I have to counsel them that they might and call me and we'll work through it if they get a flare up. But certainly don't go out and on the, um, on a weekend and start having some drinks, which a lot of my patients, like, it's hard to get away from that habit. So I do want to talk to you more about the emotional side of Lyme, as you mentioned, and the counseling services you provide to your patients. But on the other side of things, I do want to ask you, because we had, we had, we interviewed a young man, Nick Turinsky, who went right into treatment right away, and he was really sick. And his doctor at the time gave him very aggressive antibiotics, and he got so much worse that he ended up becoming bedbound and having a, a massive seizure disorder because of it. And he told us he regrets that he did too much too soon. So do you, yeah. have you seen that in your practice and how do you throttle what's the right dosage for certain people, depending on how sick they are? Well, you realize I'm talking more about the beginners or intermediates, the, the newbies, because, uh, but I always feel that uh, start slow, you know, so often I'll start with single therapy um, the three groups of drugs that I most commonly use is the doxycycline family, you know, which includes tetracycline. The second group is amoxicillin, that family. And the third is Zithromax, uh, which contains bioxin. So I got to start from the somewhere. I tend to prefer doxycycline if, if the stomach can tolerate it because it covers the most things that are in a tick. Uh, and, um, uh, the amoxicillin only works for Lyme. Zithromax and Biaxin only work for Lyme and Bartonella. So I, I, I often start slow with a single therapy, but you know, you know, I'm, I'm always subject to change. So over time, I've gradually changed, and I find that quite often I'll do something for Babesia at the same time as I do something for doxycycline. So you'll commonly see a doxycycline prescription with a, a Babesia prescription. So with doxycycline, even though you read about four, you know, 400 milligrams, I always start with 200, you know, you know, 100, 100, rather than try to overwhelm the system. Uh, I, with the Babesia thing, I'll do the lower dose. Like the Mepron, this liquid stuff is, is 750 milligrams per dose. Malarone is a combination pill with 250 milligrams. And so, there's a pediatric dose of, that's 62.5. So if someone is pretty sick, I might start with the lowering the doxycycline even as low as 50 milligrams twice a day and do the pediatric dose for Babesia. So it just shows that instead of, um, I find instead of everything all at once, um, get on with it in layers. And, and, and part of this communication is you're, I'm going to call you with the bloods. You're going to call me with any questions and we'll work our way through this thing 
because that transition time is important, trying to be successful. Because you know how many people have to end up having to stop medicine right away because they, uh, they can't tolerate one of the five things they just got. So it sounds like your approach is to start with one therapeutic, sometimes more if necessary, and then fold things in as you know your patient That's can it. handle what they're on, right? And for Babesia, it sounds like the key things you're using are Mepron, which is that liquid you described, and then Malarone as well, which I guess Malarone, is that, is that the same thing as Mepron? You mentioned that it's 250 well, that, milligram dose. Atovaclone is the, is the active ingredient. So Mepron is pure Atovaclone. Malarone is a, is a Tovaclone with proguanol, but that's a 250 milligram. And the pediatric is 62.5. So I, I found that I've used Mepron a lot. I've used Malarone a lot, but Mepron is a, is you know liquid and you still you know you spill a lot it's yellow everywhere it's crappy it's hard to take and so uh, if if so I often start with the pill version the malarone is used for travel medicine to prevent malaria uh, or to treat malaria so and I just seem it seem instead of a maximus where you do everything to the max all the way to the top full speed on everything is I often find a that if I start Babesia earlier at a more modest doses, I don't uh, get near the chaos that somebody else might see. So it, question for you. So you mentioned that you generally start with three drugs, doxy, amoxicillin, and zithromax. Oh, well, you one know, of the three. One, one of the three. three. I picked one of those three so that, um, you know, even though that I've had patients have one of everything, all of the above is I got to pick one of those three. So if they can't, tolerate doxycycline or they're not, their stomach's a mess, I have backups, but I don't, I may never get past doxycycline. And if your patient gets better, then you maybe don't go down the Babesia route. If not, then that's when you go to one of these Babesia medications you just described, it sounds like. So you did mention earlier though, that you, you've you used bicillin in your practice as well, which is that intramuscular shot, which I believe is an antibiotic too. We've had yeah. people tell us in the past, they like bicillin because it bypasses the gut and it doesn't damage the gut microbiome like a lot of these other antibiotics. So, you know, what is, what is your thought to that? Because we haven't really talked about the damage a lot of these drugs can do to your gut and understanding that sometimes it's necessary, but how do you counter the damage to the, to the gut and your microbiome? And is that why you use bicillin sometimes to bypass that if somebody has a really unhealthy gut? Well, I find that uh, bicillin or intravenous uh, rocephin still goes to the gut. So there's no way to avoid touching the biome. And so I, I'm not doing bicillin because that's, uh, that's because it's going to give you trouble anyway. So um, I actually don't use bicillin very often uh, because I use PEN-VK, you know, penicillin VK, which is the, you know, that giving you what you get with bicillin in a pill form. And of course, of, of all of the drugs, if that's the one drug that I got beat up on by the medical board is that it, it, it just like when you have this, like, hmm, is that, you know, it's sort of still like a curl and earworm in your head thinking, gosh, if I can get them better without bicillin is that why put a, a another arrow in my back saying, oh yeah. So I do, you know, I am, I may sound brave, but I still, uh, you know, it's still intimidating a little bit to have a medical board uh, action and the medical board uh, giving me troubles to, um, uh, you know, because I want to stay in practice too. So I'm not totally fearless. I still have uh, um, some some reservations. Well, you're definitely 
certainly more fearless than most doctors that we have been aware of. And I also think there's two pieces to that. So beyond trying to protect yourself from the medical boards by doing what you can to help the patient, but not put extra risk on your shoulders, you're also doing it to protect the patient because as you noted, too much medication can cause somebody to get sick and stop and never treat again and never get better. So your approach of starting slow and seeing what works is beneficial to the patient, but also protecting you from the medical board as well, right? Yeah, I think that if I can get better with a simpler strategy and, you know, you'd be surprised how many doctors out there are taking a kind of a first and second approach. You'll see lots of doctors treating doxycycline more than uh, three weeks or they'll do a retreatment, they'll do amoxicillin. So they're, you know, just because there's two extremes, you know, the three weeks, that's it. Or where I am is that, is I think that uh, doctors are reading and uh, trying to do something for their patients. So you see some more flexibility than it used to be. But let's talk about that because when I was first diagnosed with, with Lyme disease and it was severe neurological Lyme disease, they, I, I conferred with a neurologist and an infectious disease doctor here in Long Island, New York. And I was given 21 days of IV ceftriaxone. And when it was over, I still wasn't feeling better. And I remember asking the infectious disease doctor, do I need more? I still don't feel good. What's wrong? And his response to me was, the Lyme bacteria is gone. You no longer have Lyme disease. It must be something else. And I think that thought process is very harmful, but I also think extremely prolonged antibiotics can be harmful as well for my personal opinion. So where do you stand as far as dosage? What's your minimal and what's your maximum time frame to administer antibiotics where there's, where there's not as much risk that can come along with long-term antibiotic usage? Well, there's two extremes. You know, I have people that I do four weeks with and, uh, and so I always do four because it allows for a follow-up visit because there's people that are all better and, and everything is fine and they, they, they make it look simple. And thank God for them. It's a blessing. Um, or maybe I'll do a second month uh, with doxycycline and, and uh, malarone. Then I get the ones that fail completely. You know, they'll do this, the doxycycline, they'll fail the amoxicillin, they'll try the Zithromax, uh, and uh, they've already done something for Babesia. So if they fail completely, um, then uh, I usually don't like to continue treatment if they totally fail. Uh, during that time, I have the opportunity to make sure they don't have any other diseases because you know, they're working with me, they're trusting me to try what I can. They, they see a neurologist, a cardiologist, just like you do, just see if, what I'm missing. So if they can't find another disease during that time and I can't find another disease that time and they're not getting anywhere and then they try integrative medicine too, and they're still not getting anywhere. I don't like to keep treating. It's these in-between ones that all doctors who work with Lyme have where they, you know, six months later, they're making progress. They go off, they're getting worse. Uh, They've been to every other doctor. That's the kind where six months later, I have some people like that. A year later, I have people like that. That uh, So I have a range. Um, but I'm comfortable treating longer if I need to. It's just that uh, there's always a, a lot of diversity. So I think some practices that, that it takes six months to get seen are already kind of selecting out people who've been sick for six months. So whenever they talk about Lyme, uh, or maybe it's a year before you see them. And then they charge uh, uh, for this and that, and they have so many alternative things they do. And so you're, they are indeed reflecting what they see. I have a little broader practice because I pe see people within a day or two of them calling. So I'm going to get a, an, an 
get a, a, an opportunity to treat them earlier on. That's why I might be more optimistic for those kind of patients. If you do treat them like 9-11, get on with it and do something right, right out the bat. I think that makes a huge difference in why I might sound a little rosier for those patients than just the fatalistic approach. So two follow-up questions in that one. So you, you described a couple of scenarios. So if somebody in your best case scenario, somebody's on treatment for four weeks and they're feeling better and they can stop. Sometimes you, you push it to eight weeks and it may be doxy and malaria and they're feeling better. But then you said others, you could be on it for, you know, you try a wide variety of different things. Six months comes in and they're still not better. And then you stop antibiotic treatment. So what do you do with those patients at that point? Do you refer them out to a, to a holistic doctor? Do you try something else? How do you deal with those patients who aren't getting better at all after several months of trying a variety of different things that are in your toolbox? Well, because I can see them right away is that I can introduce them to the integrative medicine concept relatively early. And so everybody's making decisions on their budget, their time, their experience. Some of them have already come out of that field already where it wasn't good enough. And so I'd say, you know, I do uh, lots of conversations. I, 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 one of the reasons I don't do alternative medicine is that that takes some time. Like what test to order, how to interpret the test, what herbal things up front, the dozen things you might have to take. Or, and so I like to spend time on, with that person on how are you feeling? What are you feeling like? What's your family feel like? Uh, where are you in school? Where are you at work? Uh, what, how to improve your function? How to deal with an illness that's so overwhelming in your emotional state, overwhelming in your, in your uh, function. And so I, that's what I put my time on. And therefore, I get to know that patient really well, trying to work out a solution. If they've been in, by the time they get to be sick for six months with me, I know them pretty well. They know me well, and they we work together to come up with something that's creative for them. So, have you found that people? You mentioned a lot of patients come to you from natural medicine or holistic medicine, and then sometimes you refer them out if they're not getting better. Do you have patients that treat with both, meaning they treat with you using traditional pharmaceuticals and then also use holistic medicine in parallel? Because we know many people do that and have success too. So what are your thoughts on combining natural medicine with Western medicine? So treating with you and also a natural doctor as well. Well, I'm having quite a few uh, integrative holistic medicine physicians who, who aren't treating, but they'll uh, refer them to me to work alongside them. So I have a lot, that's happening quite often. So they'll do their part to see what they could do with a Herxheimer, what they could do with their, their diet, and, and then I do my part. And so we're kind of a, that true, what integrative medicine was supposed to be, is that, that combination. And that's a, for that kind of person, it's, a, it's great to have the budget and time and, the, and having a good uh, integrative medicine person on, on, on their team. And it's teamwork, right? I mean, that's what we've heard also. People who aren't having success that are the harder cases then will work with other specialists and those specialists will work together to get them the, the best care possible. And then they end up feeling better with a team of doctors working on their health. So I do want to follow up. So the second part of that, that follow-up question is, you mentioned that some people get a little bit better and six months in, you want to continue treating them because they've had some progress, but they're not better yet. We've interviewed so many people, Dr. Cameron, that have told us they were on antibiotic therapy or a combination of antibiotic therapy. They got better. They stop taking the antibiotics and they get sick again. And we've, we've labeled that and we call that the antibiotic loop where they get become dependent on antibiotics to stay well. And as soon as they go off antibiotics, they become ill again. So have you experienced that in your practice? And if so, how do you deal with that response? Well, they definitely, um, um, I have patients like that, you know, that remember I have a continuum. 
where it gets very challenging. And so I'm always spending all that counseling time working through what have they tried? What else are we missing? Uh, but yes, I have people where it's like, they're, they're, they're so uh, having troubles with just quality of life. They're not working They're uh, Particularly, I do a lot of adolescent work where I try to figure out how can they stay in school somehow keep their education going despite so many symptoms, you know, so much POTS, uh, which is a lightheaded type feeling. And uh, because, you know, that I'm waiting so that they can have a degree when they finally, um, or graduate from high school when they finally get uh, better. So I'd say it's, you know, it may be a complicated answer other than that, that it takes a lot of work to get somebody through that difficult time of being sick rather than just what pill to take. So I just want to make sure I understand what your answer was. So if somebody's getting better on antibiotics, they stop and they get worse, and then they go on antibiotics and they get better again, they have that sort of a pattern. You then dig deeper to see, well, why do you continue to get sick and try to address those other things going on? And possibly it could be emotional, it sounds like, is what you're, you're suggesting. Well, it's certainly an emotional experience um, to have recurrent issues. And so I think that I, I try to certainly take on the emotional as a part of their health. Then I look at uh, have they slipped on their diet? Have they slipped on, uh, uh, on is their stress high? Uh, maybe the integrative medicine is, uh, is, is uh, going to be helpful. Or is there an antibiotic that they uh, haven't tried? So Because there's some antibiotics that I didn't mention that, uh, that are already being used. Uh, sometimes there's other things that are uh, around. So it's a, it's dig deeper again. Like, what am I missing? And I still have troubled patients, even with even when everything I mentioned is done and I got every integrative right to the max, every every counseling type thing, uh, I still got people that are in trouble. And you could tell that from the Internet. The blogging is that those people are talking about that. They, they're out there and I have some of them also. It's, it's, a, it's, it's that's the other extreme. So I, I take care of both. Do you think part of that is people become too dependent on antibiotics as the cure-all and they feel better. And then when they're off, they go back to their pre-sickness life, which means, as you noted earlier, they're going out and they're drinking, they're not sleeping well enough, they're having a poor diet, they're having a high stress lifestyle. And because once you're exposed to chronic illness like Lyme disease, you're more susceptible to have a relapse and people are doing things like that, which is why they're getting stuck in this vicious cycle of, of this antibiotic loop we described. Right, It's I have uh, people that say, oh good, I'll be off antibiotics Friday because I got this uh, party on Saturday. I bet can't wait or the holidays coming up is that um, on Christmas, I, you know, I'll be done the day before I'm going to go uh, 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 my drinks with my buddy. And so it's a, it's, it's a, so trying to get ahead of them uh, in that situation is, is still important. You know, they still, even if they do everything right, there's still some in trouble. Right. So some, some people do everything right and they still continue to decline yes. off antibiotics, but others it's because of the things they're doing, thinking they're invincible again, like they were before they were sick, that possibly contributes to their relapse. So you did mention Dr. Cameron, that there are other antibiotics you didn't talk about that you use if necessary. So what are those antibiotics? Well, we're trying to learn from uh, other infections. So the whole Bartonella theory um, that, you know, it, it mostly, uh, most of the research on Bartonella is from the mites on cats. In fact, the poo from mites on cats gets scratched into people, but it seems like that same infection seems to show up in the tick, or at least shows up in the Lyme population. So the question is, is there something we can do if we treated Bartonella? So if you look at the things that are 
used for Bartonella and cat scratch fever, there's the doxycycline that I mentioned, the Zithromax uh, that I mentioned, but there's other things like Bactrim and Rifampin. Rifampin we've heard of before because that's our backup drug for anaplasmosis. Also, there was some research on from a from test tube research that maybe flagyl or tenetazole works. Uh, and I used to use flagyl sometimes as my backup back when uh, Mepron was a brand name and was costing over two thousand a month, and flagyl was ten bucks. So it's a so sometimes in a budget I'd have to figure out how to use it. And so I don't use flagyl. In a pulse approach, I use it to low dose every day in, in some of my toughest patients. And flagyls used for Bartonella and Babesia, it sounds like? Mm, I'm not sure. It works for Lyme. But for Lyme. Uh, I, I guess I confuse it by saying I use Bactrim and Rifampin for Bartonella. And, but I use flagyl for uh, sometimes if I think there's Babesia because uh, it's a, it can work for parasites. So I'll use it for that rather than just for Lyme. Gotcha. So Lyme and Babesia. So yeah. on the note of Bartonella, we've heard, so I'm sure you've heard of the concept of Lyme rage. And we've explored this a lot with a lot of our guests over the last two years. And we've been corrected by many people who told us they don't believe it's Lyme rage. They believe that it's Bartonella rage and that the Bartonella bacteria is actually what causes a lot of these psychological problems, specifically the rage. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you think do you think Lyme is causing these, these rage issues, or do you think that really is Bartonella and people are mistaking it for Lyme disease? Well, I, I think that, uh, that there's neuropsych issues with where every mood is up, like rage, despair, the, uh, they're crying for no reason. So, you know, there's these wave, like what I call tsunamis. Uh, so if an irritability rage or a rage, I'm not a big fan of uh, blaming Bartonella because I see the same thing in Lyme. Now, for some reason, some of my colleagues are convinced that anything bad is a Bart problem or Bartonella. And I, I think that uh, it, I can't see um, blaming one of the tick-borne pathogens for, for what causes those mood issues. And so sometimes when people see rage, they'll take on the Bartonella and say, oh, it's Bartonella, and they'll throw away all of the other concerns, and they don't treat for Lyme or they don't treat for Babesia. And, and the, you know, if it works, great. But I, I, I don't like to put Bart up on a pedestal saying, I know that's a Bartonella thing. So are there any other treatments you use for your really difficult patients? So we talked about Flagyl, Bactrim, Rifampin. We talked about Zithromax, Amoxicillin, Doxycycline, Mepron, Malarone. We talked about, you know, a wide variety of treatments. But we do know there are things out there like we, we hear a lot of people using the for example, dapsone, the double dapsone, the quadruple dapsone. These are buzzwords we hear a lot in the Lyme community and disulfiram. So what are your thoughts on using dapsone for tick-borne illnesses and also disulfiram? Well, dapsone works in a test tube. Uh, and so Dr. Horowitz is setting the, the, the stage uh, that why not try that? Um, and he's, he's written about it, a case series, but it's tough for me because when he when he's treating with Dapsone, he's also treating with four or so other antibiotics. He's treating with alternative medicine at the same time. And so you don't know what's working. I find Dapsone, there's a few extra side effects that I'm concerned with. And so I've been reluctant to do it just because it works in a test tube. Um, but you still like, a, you know, I'm still a work in progress. I'm still learning. I'm still uh, humbled by uh, the uncertainty. 
And so I, I don't tend to use uh, that one. Now the disulfiran, which is called Anabuse, um, Dr. Ligner has led that charge. Uh, and he um, he's basing it because it works in a test tube, this disulfiran. And it's very difficult to take. You know, you have to start with a pretty low dose to kind of get get your way up there. You have to avoid alcohol or any alcohol products. So once in a while I've done it um, on some of my tougher patients, that, but I don't like to rush into disulfiran. I, I see some people there within the within the first few weeks, they're already on disulfiran, which is not an antibiotic. So I think you, uh, I would prefer going on with the other antibiotics first before going to a disulfiran effect. Um, but you know, every once in a while I get someone who can tolerate disulfiran, they gradually increase the dose and get something out of it. But I certainly don't know if disulfiran is gonna make the test of time. So Dr. Cameron, let's talk about risk versus reward because especially with disulfiran, we've heard from so many people tell us that they are so desperate and they take it but they develop so many more psychological issues. Specifically, some people tell us they develop psychosis or they develop like this depersonalization or this rage or this anxiety. And many people tell us that even after they stop taking disulfiram, these symptoms persist. And now they're dealing with additional mental health related symptoms because of the disulfiram. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that that's a direct result of maybe too much disulfiram or too much too soon? Is that something people should be aware of when considering disulfiram? Well, all of those things you mentioned, including depersonalization, happens happens anyway in Lyme or, or the whole uh, tick-borne illnesses. So, it uh, so I think that disulfiram perhaps adds to it. But uh, since all those things also show up in any of the tick-borne, I can't be sure what's already um, just exaggerated. Uh, but I, I do tell people though is that disulfiram can have. Uh, a fair amount of emotional issues. And so that uh, beware if one ever does it. So it's certainly a pretty low on the bottom of my, on my list. And, uh, and I have them work with them, have them work with me on a really low dose to, uh, to be sure they can even tolerate it and don't feel like you have to be a martyr and take it. You also mentioned that Dapsone has some side effects that make you not use it that much. So what are the side effects of Dapsone that cause you to not use it so much in your practice? Well, I can't be so sure because it's. I always have to look it up since I don't use it, since I can't really rattle off right now the list of side effects uh, if I don't use it. Right, so, so the other thing that I want to talk to you about is parasites, because it seems right now, especially on social media and on a lot of these blogs and forums, the most popular thing is parasites. People are saying, I'm not getting better from Lyme disease. And I finally started to address the parasites in my body. And now I'm feeling better. And they're, they're pivoting to brands like Cellcor for natural herbal remedies to address parasites. So I guess the first question I have about parasites are, do you believe they really play a major role in inhibiting somebody from getting better from chronic tick-borne illnesses? Well, I find a lot of people get better without the alternative medicine or without the parasite treatments anyway. So not to overlook those classic treatments is what I recommend. But I have people who are doing poorly. Uh, and so within within a short period of time, I at least introduced the concepts that, that tick-borne you know, infection-based, uh, Babesia-based uh, treatments uh, still are, just because they work for me, is they still I have people who fail. And so um, I'll introduce them that they, there are other approaches that are, may not even be near as far in development. Even this whole mold thing is they, you know, there are people with Lyme who are sensitive to mold, 
And so they have to decide which way to go, go toward the mold treatment, the mold and remediation, or try the lime first. I would prefer that they do the lime first before going the mold. But uh, back to your original question is that, is that um, all of those things uh, make us wonder um, where we're heading and will there be some uh, totally different treatments that will work uh, for these patients. So on the note of parasites, you know, if, are you familiar with the different types? So for example, you met, we've talked about Dr. Bioscano, we've, we've talked about Dr. Um, McDonald and in interviewing those two doctors in the past, they've talked to us about parasites in the brain, parasites in the bloodstream and parasites in your GI tract. And I wonder if you have parasites in your GI system, a lot of, a lot of these leading doctors who are studying parasites tell us that it prevents certain drugs like antibiotics from properly working in patients, from absorbing the antibiotics and, and causing almost like a, a conflict with antibiotic treatment. So have you thought about that at all? Have you, have you studied that at all or confirmed with any of your colleagues in the, in the field about, about parasites possibly causing some conflict with treatment? Well, I, I think that there's uh, some people, you know, pick the biome, you know, the, the gut biome as their main uh, working um, plan. Um, you know, because when you talk about parasites, you know, the, in the bloodstream, that tends to be Babesia is what we're talking about. Parasites in the brain, there is not much research there, but there's an endless amount of stuff in the gut that you don't want to hear about that they can find if they or extend a stool sample, especially certain stool places do a lot of testing. So, um, you know, I don't treat the uh, treat those types of parasites or those type of bacteria in the gut. If somebody really has gut issues or wants to, they go to integrative medicine and, uh, and chases after that. I'm not so sure uh, I'd like to go there with, you know, in, in, until I at least try the uh, traditional treatment first. So talk to us in your experience, Dr. Cameron, about other things that can prevent people from getting better. So if you've addressed, if you've, you've done everything right first, you tried all these antibiotics, you tried all these different you have a wide toolbox of drugs you can try. There are things we hear about all the time, right? And LymeDisease.org published an article we reference a lot about, I did everything right, I treated Lyme and I'm still not getting better, what can it be? And some of the things that are listed there are things you noted like mold and candida and heavy metals and even parasites. So have you seen those things play a role in blocking people from getting better with traditional Lyme treatment that you use in your practice? Well, because I don't do the the depth of integrative medicine that text that that list is that uh, I lean on the integrative medicine to do that. So it's hard for me to judge what works and doesn't work if I don't just routinely use those things. So it's a, just because I prefer to try some of the things I'm good at first, other people try what they're good at first. Uh, and so I, but yeah, I can't sit here and say, which is uh, gonna do it, stand the test of time. And it's that team approach, right? I mean, you're, you're, you have one specialty, which is really powerful and important, but if people want to look at these other things, there are other special specialists out there that you can work with and they can build a team of doctors to help treat the patient. So the other thing is biofilm. And we've had two competing leading Lyme doctors tell us one say biofilm, eh, really not that big of a deal. And another say biofilm are key to be able to address to get better. So what are your thoughts on the, on the role of biofilms and how, how they play a role in chronic illness due to tick one illness? Well, I, I, I find that bi, biofilms in the test tube, um, they're studying that spirochetes love biofilms. That's kind of like a slime thing. It's, uh, 
it's uh, it's something that they see with staph infections, strep infections in the nose and in the ears. And so you take that material because those type of infections break down tissue, you get a bunch of slime up there. Uh, but you take that type of material, put it in a test tube with spirochete, loves it. The problem is trying to find where are the biofilms in people. So it's hard to do research if you're not completely sure where they are. And so I, I always approach it as kind of a research tool rather than I know for sure that that's the secret. You know, it's a, it's, I study all those things like the biofilm, the cyst theory, the persister theory where some bacteria are there, but ignore the antibiotics, uh, round bodies. Uh, there's just a lot of theories that I, I study, study and read and, and, and appreciate what they're doing. Uh, just it's hard to tell which things are meaningful for, for practice. So what do you, what are your thoughts about some of the, the new research coming out? Like Dr. Kim Lewis from Northeastern University now has this hygromycin A, the natural antibiotic that he has repurposed to basically eradicate all spirochetes from the body. And people are getting really excited about this. But, you know, you, taught, you started this podcast by telling us that Lyme is a polymicrobial infection and it's not just the spirochete. It's not just the Lyme bacteria. So, you know, Rich and I always look at this with kind of a little bit of caution saying, well, it's great that you can address the Lyme bacteria possibly with this new therapeutic you found. But what about everything else you have going on, all the co-infections, everything else contributing to your chronic illness? So where do you stand on evaluating these new things like hygromycin A to address the Lyme spirochete? Well, that the that. A, hydromycin A is a problem because it's not approved for human use. So you can't do clinical trials. You can't really treat people until it's approved. Um, and that's, uh, so they can't do good research. Now, most of the other drugs that I mentioned today are at least on the market that you can get it at a pharmacy that we know the risk and benefits, uh, the side effects of them that we've talked about earlier. But this one is still off the shelf, works in a, in a test tube type environment and works in mice, but it's a long ways till it gets to people. And so, you know, that makes me reluctant to, um, until we know what dose and what kind of thing is used. Now, it has been introduced as a concept. Uh, the press release made it sound like, oh, we're, we're right there and why don't I just write a prescription for it? Yes. Um, it seems like it has as exciting potential if you put it into a, a mouse that you might be able to clean up the mouse. But most of the time when you catch a mouse, you're, you're not giving them an antibiotic and then releasing them. You're just saying, oh, hmm, what am I gonna do with this one? Oh, a sidelight, there was somebody that, that once had a, a tick and they didn't want to dispose of the tick. They were afraid. So they, they drove their tick to someplace else and let it go because they didn't want the cat to bring it back to the house. So it's, I just thought I'd mention that there's, there's, uh, everybody has their own idea of what, what to protect. In this case, uh, most people don't even protect mice, relocate mice. So let's, let's also talk about the COVID vaccine, because I do know you've done some public appearances on this and you've discussed your views on this. And I understand that the chronic Lyme community at its core is very hesitant to, to accept anything that the mainstream medical community is pushing on them because we've been so mistreated by most doctors in our lives. But on the other hand, I do understand that there's a benefit to the vaccine and that there are things that should be addressed. And it's such a sensitive topic and a controversial topic, especially in the Lyme community. So what are you advising your patients to do with the COVID vaccine? Well, um, I've had the vaccine because um, my, my criteria is to... Um, 
you know, is that I hate hospitalizations and doctors hate being on a respirator or having a chronic pneumonia or post Lyme. And so that's why I always have been recommending it based on those outcomes. Now I have patients who, who have such flare-ups of Lyme that no matter what the other outcomes is, the flare-up is the last thing they want, no matter what the risk is of death, risk of hospitalizations, they don't want it period because of that particular problem. Now, because of the, because I know that's my opinion and how I do it is I did a survey, uh, started the survey this July, you know, it took a few months to prepare for it, but I've had over 800 people who finished the survey. Uh, and I looked at people with Lyme, people with Lyme who had COVID, those who had Lyme and the vaccine. So I had Horowitz on, uh, on a podcast, uh, to discuss uh, the findings. So I can share that with you if you'd like. Absolutely, please do. Uh, what, I've, what I've found is that, that people with Lyme are sick on neuropsych, neurologic issues, uh, pain. And so I think we all know that, you know, all of your viewers. But if you got COVID, they were significantly worse than the, the population of just who had Lyme, you know, on, on all those measures, you know, especially the neuropsych and neurologic. Now, the group that took the vaccine, many of them complained about symptoms, complained, they thought maybe it was worse, but the worst, the getting worse was, was most of the time for three days. So, but if you look at the average uh, symptoms, the average burden of symptoms, that group with the vaccine actually was better than the, than just the Lyme patients. So, so if I recap, having COVID is made the whole uh, average worse. Having the vaccine, it was actually a better. Um, could be that they self-selected, but uh, but I was surprised that the vaccine group did pretty well. So just just so to to, to kind of for my own knowledge here, the people who took the people who got COVID that did your survey, they were Lyme disease patients yeah. who contracted COVID. Yeah. Their symptomology was much worse from a physical standpoint and from a psychological standpoint. So their emotional and neurological symptoms and their physiological symptoms were far worse yeah. and lasted far longer than people well, who received it. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if they're far worse, but you can you recapped it. Well, I don't know how long it lasted because the design is not designed to see how long they are sick. It's just that, at the time they fill out the survey, yes, they're much worse. So they're worse, but we don't know if it was longer is what you're saying, I believe, right? Because it, the, my first part of the study was a snapshot. It didn't say, hey, you are so sick for now, is how long does that sickness last? It, it, because uh, vaccine's easier because you know, you know, you can ask them from that vaccine, but it's a, but how long does it last and how long does it, although I did find that 20% of those who took the, uh, who had Lyme, who got, COVID, 20% had uh, uh, shortness of breath, uh, about 20% had uh, long COVID, uh, and then about 10% had smell problems and taste problems. So it's, a, it's not only got worse overall, but there was a fair amount of chronic symptoms that they were having. So uh, I guess, it, so it is true that it was, 
COVID resulted in worse symptoms, but also 20% of them developed long COVID, which meant they did last longer, right? Because it became a chronic issue, right? That's a, I, you answered my question because I, I, I you thought no. about that way, but it was a, it's easy that you, 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 you clarified it. And then people who are getting the vaccine, it sounds like the, the, the vast majority of them are possibly having a flare of symptoms for several days, but then, yeah. then recovering to their pre-vaccination state shortly after. Yeah, their average went went back to um, even better than the average for the average Lyme patient, a little, you know, so it was a, so it was a short-term uh, phenomenon that the, for most people, you know, I'm sure there's a few exceptions and there are uh, those who read my blogs and read uh, what I write. There are certainly people who have uh, long-term problems with, uh, with the vaccine, you know, of course, most of the time people who say they have long-term problems with the vaccine in my blogs, you know, when they write to my blogs, they're complicated anyway, because there's some people that, you know, have ups and downs and ups and downs, you know, it's a tough life when you have chronic uh, Lyme. So those outliers of the vaccinated patients that are saying they now have worsened long-term problems could just be that they're having ups and downs because we know healing is not linear, right? And you think they could just be possibly confusing flare-ups with, with a vaccine response. Yeah. And that's why, that's why the, even though I have about a thousand now who finished the survey, it'd be so important for more people to fill out the survey. So when I get into the questions that you just asked, which is how many have long COVID after the after uh, COVID and what ages are there? Um, uh, how many were on a respirator? And, you know, so, that, you know, there were two people on that had needed major oxygen. Uh, there were 12 people hospitalized. What, what, what actually happens? And so, you know, I'm putting a plug in that more people who fill out that survey on Daniel Cameron, MD, the more I can answer those kind of questions that you just raised. So it's, a, yeah, and also kids. I only have about 18 kids. The more kids that fill out that survey uh, with, with their parents' uh, permission is that it will help a great deal to get to the next questions. Well, the, the, Dr. Cameron, I can tell you, I have taken your survey and it's really easy and quick to do. So I want to encourage everybody as well to go to danielcameron.com. I believe you said it was. And to Daniel fill out Cameron, the survey. danielcameronmd.com. danielcameronmd.com. And we're going we're gonna to post that link in the show notes. So it's available when people listen to this podcast, they can click on that link and easily go to your survey and take it because this data is going to help people make informed decisions about what they should do with COVID because I don't think it's going anywhere at this point. I mean, we're just seeing this, this flux of, of up and down with COVID. And I do want to ask an odd question. If you have any thoughts on, we've had some people reach out to us because, you know, again, it's a common topic and tell us they got the vaccine. And after the few days of having a flare up, they actually felt better than they did before, meaning their Lyme symptoms actually subsided a little bit. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, that may be why the, the, the Lyme population that had taken the vaccine had better scores on neuropsych, on neurologic, and their, their burden of symptoms. So I can't tell if it's because healthy people take the vaccine or because that population got some value out of the vaccine or, you know, where their immune system settled down. So it's a, that's why the, that there's, I, I have more questions, uh, from these first thousand who've been kind enough to fill out the survey than answers yet. So it's a, I, I'm a, as an epidemiologist, it's a gold mine of things. And uh, so I'm preparing some papers already. Uh, now I'm doing this on my own budget. So it's a, and time, because you know, this takes time. 
Um, so I just figured it's a lot easier to start this project instead of a big, huge project with a big, heavily funded with all kinds of people is that I could do it. I have a statisticians that I work with. And so I'm able to uh, more quickly get this topic to this level. Well, we, we want to thank you for dedicating your time and your money and your resources to helping the community with COVID, especially the, the, the chronic Lyme community. And my final COVID-related question is for those who are still not going to get the vaccine or still want to, you know, possibly delay it a little bit longer or not get it at all. What advice do you give your patients who are not getting the vaccine? You know, we talked about, we've seen some things with you, uh, some publications you've done with the ionizer and certain precautions people can take to help avoid exposure to COVID. So what are some tools or advice you'd give to those people that aren't getting the vaccine that can help them reduce the likelihood of getting infected from COVID? Well, part of it is that I'm in New York and New York has a, a lot of, uh, rules. They're also, uh, they're deaf on doctors who are, are going uh, off. So I, I don't get to use some of the drugs that are out there so freely. So some of my colleagues who haven't been, who, who haven't had as much troubles are, are throwing out some recommendations, but I, I can't, by not using them, I don't have a, uh, I don't have a, the, the ability to give any feedback, you know, some of them that are seeing integrated medicine get, uh, I learned from them, but I, but I, I, I wish I could give you much feedback, but I can't. So is there, is there anything else you want to share with us as far as giving the community hope, right? I mean, I think the biggest problem we see in the chronic Lyme community is people are not doing anything because they've tried some things, they've gotten worse or not much better, and then they just stop and they either stay sick or they get worse. And what Rich and I try to do and what we do with Tick Boot Camp is to give people hope that they can get better. And we've seen really extreme cases of people being bed bound for years, be able to make significant improvement and have a, a really good quality of life. So what words of wisdom can you share with our listeners to give them hope that they can get better and to not give up on their treatment journey? Well, first of all, it's just that, that I, I tend to um, look at a broader practice. So it's pretty easy to get caught up on, on thinking that everybody's sick and everybody's failing treatment and only that's all there is because it is a very visceral feeling. If you're sick, people, even if you haven't been sick very long, you feel like you're doomed, you're not gonna make it. You know, I always refer to the good news, bad news. Good news, you're gonna live forever. Uh, bad news, you're gonna live forever, feeling this way. And so given that, even the very beginning, you hear that doomsday feeling, is I said, well, don't even think about uh, giving up uh, so early. And you'd be surprised how many little uh, tricks or things that can get done, um, even for my limited end, to uh, get them over the hump. Just don't uh, take that doom feeling. And uh, if anything, you know, like I go to IV, but less than 10% of the time, you know, I do do IV and it's, you know, it's valuable, but uh, there's so many simpler strategies and, uh, and so many, uh, you know, cheaper strategies to try first. So Dr. Cameron, talk to us about what you think the future is for the Lyme community. Where do you think things are going to go and where do you think uh, the areas of the greatest hope are? Well, it, with the medical community is that there's, uh, fortunately, there's a lot of my colleagues that are out there in every community who are brave, have strong backs and strong uh, uh, feelings. Now, some of them, they had Lyme themselves, so they know it viscerally. They just know it because they know it. But there's some other people who don't have Lyme who 
who are taking on the challenges. So I think their biggest hope is the future. You get more and more people. Uh, I've had some people who do, doing their papers in high school that I that I work with or uh, projects online so that I, I would see the next generation is going to be a lot more people who take an interest in it. And also some of the obstructionists that um, that you know took the position that chronic issue Lyme is and chronic tick-borne is not an issue uh, are going to fade away eventually, you know. And so one of the reasons that I keep publishing is not because I can change the minds of the old guard, but you know I've written 600 blogs so far and 50 podcasts just saying, well, I can at least lay out a few little rocks, little pebbles out for the next generation that, you know, the guideline is a rock that you can stand on or uh, leap over to the second guideline or maybe leap over to a, a blog or something. And so you can see my perspective as to what I thought that 1990 article was, you know, by writing so much, uh, there all these articles at my fingertips. So I can just share before, before I, uh, uh, pass away some days that share a few things for the next generation. But Cameron, as you know, from our, our pre-interview conversation, we here at Tech Bootcamp are big fans of your, um, of your website. We're big fans of your blog and we're big fans of your, um, of your podcast. So can you share with our listeners where they can go to first um, uh, contact, uh, you know, get the information that you have on your website and where they can go to, um, come in contact with your blogs and your, um, and your podcast? Probably the first step would be um, the Daniel Cameron MD website. So on the top bar, there's something called blog. And that gets you eat all the fresher stuff. But there's a search bar where whatever you think of is I've probably written on the subject. Although, there, listen, I'm, there's, I'm, there's always an endless amount I could write, but That'll get you like a 600 word, 500 word comment on an article, on a fresh article, a fresh publication. Um, so you can kind of get my view or the research articles view that's put into perspective. Um, the podcast you can get to uh, through the normal podcast remedies. There's a website touches on it. Um, I'm, I'm trying to do a hybrid where I do podcasts where I actually have a a video with it, you know, just to sort of experiment. I'm I'm an amateur, but an amateur on a on a budget that uh, that where I learn all these things through YouTube Academy. You know, I learned uh, YouTube all the time to figure out what well, how can I do this audio, how can I do this video, and so the uh, so I your your uh, all your work that you guys have been doing is inspiring, and so I'm I'm trying to follow uh, in the footsteps of you legends. So, legends. Uh, so one of the reasons why I want to encourage our folks to uh, follow your podcast, and obviously people who are following our podcast are podcast lovers, and they, they're going to look for other podcasts, is because you have a really interesting approach to taking what would be dry academic uh, research, and you turn it into a story format in a very short, sometimes 10 minutes, uh, 15 minute um uh, both outline of the facts and then ultimately the uh, the your, your comments on it. So talk to us about what inspired you to do the podcast in the format that you did and what kind of a response you're getting from people other than me, who, as you know, I love the uh, the format. Well, I guess I picture, uh, you know, being at a fireplace, uh, being, um, you know, sort of being a grandfather, although I am a grandfather, 
four times over. So how do, how do you reflect back on a, a career at a, um, you know, in a conversation like I do with my patients, I talk the same way with my patients. So I get, I've had uh, um, 36 years of time working with patients, talking, conversing, bringing it down to something that they can work with. So if I could seamlessly bring that experience as a doctor with a Lyme patient that's uh, so uh, challenging to the podcast, to my blog, that I've met my goal of, uh, of uh, continuity, you know, and, and, and plus the overall goal of doing uh, something to work myself and also to encourage uh, the whole community to keep moving forward to and, and find uh, uh, directions in this complicated time. So I don't know where you are in your clinical practice, if you're taking patients or not. If, if you are, how would folks get in touch with you and what are the different um, methods of working with you that are available to the uh, Lyme community? Well, uh, you know, there's always this expression that you, uh, if you want to get anything done, you go to the busiest person in the, uh, that you know. So it's a, so even though it looks like I have plenty to do and I'm working on things all the time and doing things is that my wife has been supportive of me, um, me working. So she does so much that to take care of me. Um, and so, at, uh, so she wants to get you out of the house. Yeah, that's it. So that, so therefore I always have plenty of time in my practice to right. see new people all the time. And I usually I can see them within a day or two, um, uh, of them calling if they, if they're available. So it's a, yeah, that I'll give you my number as long as you had it because we, we are open for business. Please just uh, just list the number for us now so folks who will listen to this podcast can get in touch with you. And, and of course, we uh, we are always asked for uh, referrals to doctors, and we, we would really look forward to uh, okay. encouraging folks to work with you. Yeah, it's 914-666-4665. And I'm in practice in Mount Kisco, New York, which is about 45 minutes north of Manhattan. Dr. Cameron, I'm going to ask you the last question we asked to every single one of our guests. It's the add-on to the storyline. And that is, if God forbid, uh, one of your grandchildren came walking into your office right after this podcast and they had a tick biting them on their arm, what would you recommend that they do so they wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? Well, I, um, I'm not a big fan of... Um, two doxycycline pills. I, I keep writing on the subject that uh, two doxycycline pills can prevent a rash, but I'm not convinced it prevents uh, any of the other things that we've talked about today. So first thing to do is get that tick off, try not to grab it by its belly or it might throw up into you. So even if you're an amateur, you got get that tick off. Uh, but I don't like two doxycycline pills either I would tell my family member to watch very carefully or take three to four weeks of antibiotics and then a follow-up visit. So I don't like this two pills. You know, I guess if you've had Lyme before, nobody with Lyme, knowing somebody with Lyme is that they're much more likely to say, oh yeah, I don't want to take a chance. I know so-and-so. Those who've never had any experience you know, they're, you know, even if I give them a pill, they're probably not going to stay with it more than a day or two because they don't take it seriously. But I'll certainly offer treatment if they're willing. Dr. Cameron, it's, it's simple. 
like doxycycline. And then because it would be easy, it can show up several weeks later, I'll often say, well, listen, if you get sick or start getting sick and the doxycycline is not working, is that there is this Babesia that pops up a few weeks later. Dr. Cameron, it's, it's rare that uh, nationally recognized experts like you uh, take as much time as you've taken out for us and our audience. We can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise with the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Dr. Daniel Cameron. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Daniel Cameron, please visit his Instagram page at dr. Daniel Cameron. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons we have at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp is created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please know we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to offer. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get you automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.